0: If you have your Bibles open to John chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 18, as you're opening there, let me just say, uh, as a reminder, just so it's very clear, next Sunday the only thing we'll have is a worship service downstairs. We will not have Sunday school. So uh, next week, same normal time. we'll have. You're welcome to get here early if you'd like to and get a little head start on breakfast. Uh, we'll, we'll have breakfast ready early, but we'd love for you to come and be a part and uh, enjoy a little time, light breakfast, and a time of prayer. I like to do this every year as we end one year and begin another. We like to have a whole Sunday dedicated to prayer, with a short message on prayer and, and time to pray as well. So we look forward to seeing you next Sunday, downstairs in Fellowship Hall, right right underneath here. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and uh, stand with me, out of reverence, the reading of the words of our God. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking To us, beginning in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me. Because He was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Oh God, we ask you if you would open our hearts and minds today to receive your word. And God, it's our prayer that we would be changed by the power of your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever met someone famous, a celebrity, uh, maybe it was an athlete, just someone that a lot of people know? It's, It's a cool thing to have met someone famous because then the rest of your life you have a story to tell. The problem for me is I've really never had a cool story to tell. For a while, I didn't really meet a celebrity, the only story I had to tell is one time I sat behind, several rows behind Katie Holmes at a baseball game, so that's not a great story. And then the other person I met when I was in college was Raven-Symoné, and that's just not the story I want to go around telling all the time, you know, like, hey, you you know the star of the Cosby Show, and that's so Raven, Raven Raven-Symoné, I met her one time when I was in college, that's just not the coolest story, but I'm blessed now. Just the other day I met someone new, I met Daddy Warbucks, uh, renowned philanthropist, star of the stage and screen, in fact I've got a picture for you, me and Daddy Warbucks right there, and, um, and uh, s- many of you have seen Annie the Musical, uh, you've read the comic book, and uh, there you go, now I have a story to tell, the titan of industry and renowned Philanthropist Oliver Daddy Warbucks is someone I've someone I've met. It is cool though when you meet someone famous, when you have a story to tell, because what's amazing about it, what's impressive about it, what is cool to be able to say is I have been in the presence of glory, uh, of someone who is someone amazing. In fact, if you think about it, if you're into sports at all, you may even have a piece of memorabilia. I have couple of footballs that are signed by folks, and I can say things like, you know, look, that, that person actually signed this. Now, isn't that funny? Isn't, isn't that funny how we're happy just to have something that someone put their name on? Even if we didn't actually meet them, we have a piece of memorabilia, something that's attached to whatever glory it is we think they may possess. Now, again, what's cool about meeting a celebrity, and what's not cool when you meet someone who's not that impressive is that you can tell about the sort of glory and I guess maybe somewhere deep inside we think some of it rubs off on us or it's just peculiar that we would have met someone like that well this morning I I want us to look to the scriptures I, I want us to see what the Bible says what John says about the glory we have seen the glory we have seen when Jesus came here into this world we, we expect a sort of flashy glory. We expect all the pomp and circumstance of the, the birth of a newborn king. And yet, I think we'll all be surprised by how John describes the glory that we've seen. It seems to look pretty ordinary, pretty ho-hum on the surface. But as we dig into this passage, I think we'll be overwhelmed by the glory that we see at Christmas. In fact, the glory we see in the person in work. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. Three truths about the glory of Christ this morning that I want you to see. Here's the first Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. Jesus Christ is the Word made flesh. If you back up a little bit into John's Gospel and you see this, in the beginning was the Word. John 1 1, echoes of Genesis 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. What stunning theology this is. It's a summation, as we mentioned a few weeks ago. It's a summation of the totality of, of what human beings had thought in that time period about who God is. In fact, it's also alluding to and giving a picture of what God has revealed about Himself. Back in the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The very building pieces of the doctrine of the Trinity. But then you take from 1-1 and you get down here into verse 14 and something stunning is said. Something that ought to blow our minds. Perhaps as Christians we've become so accustomed to this thought that it doesn't shock us the way it would have the original hearers. Perhaps it doesn't stun us like it ought to every day when we can consider the miracle that's present in the message of Christmas. Listen to what the Bible says, verse 14, and the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, and the Word, the Word through whom all things were made, and there was not anything that was made that was not made through Him. The Word, the very defining principle of all that exists in the world, everything only makes sense in and through and for and unto the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word. The Word, in whom was life, and the life was the light of men. There's nothing pleasant, there's nothing, nothing lovely, there's nothing beautiful in this world that's not a reflection of the life and light of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word Himself, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. It's one thing to consider that we were made in the image of God. It's one thing to consider that we were made to look like Jesus in some way or another. It's another thing altogether to believe that that, Him in whose image we were made took on our flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't come into this world head and shoulders above everyone else. Like King Saul. He didn't come into this world as a handsome and towering king. He didn't come into this world as a noble warrior. He didn't come in as a strong man. He came just like you came into this world. Born as a baby. Is there anything more helpless? Is there anything more humble? Is there anything simpler than a baby? totally needy. The Word became flesh. But not only that, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Of, of all places, of all people, He dwelt among us. The Word, the One who is infinitely glorious, the second person of the Trinity, He came, became flesh and He dwelt among us. Among us, This is a little bit of an allusion, I think, also to the Old Testament where the Bible talks about God's presence filling the tabernacle. Or When the, God's people would pitch a tent before there was a permanent temple, God's presence would fill the tabernacle. And the word that John chooses to use here, that he dwelt among us, is similar to the way that that word in Hebrew is translated in Greek where he talks about pitching a tent. He tabernacled among us. That is, it's a a highlighting of the way that God was among his people Israel and the Lord Jesus has come into the world and his presence is among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. There's no doubt that John's alluding to some of the things that he saw in his life, right? you work through John's gospel, you think about the rest of John's gospel, maybe between now and Christmas you want to read through the rest of this book and and, and see some of what I'm talking about, but there are seven miracle sections in John, huge miracles that are highlighted and certainly John, when he says we have seen his glory, certainly he's alluding to those miracles that they saw, certainly John's alluding to the fact that he saw Jesus there at, at the transfiguration and there he beheld some level of Christ's glory. He is certainly glorious. There's a glory that's revealed that we see in Jesus. And yet, here in this particular context, I don't think it can be lost on us that part of what John is saying is that the glory of Christ that we've seen is precisely in which that that looks so unglorious to us, so simple to us. The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the One who flung the stars into the heavens, The architect of every beautiful and every intricate and every amazing thing that you've ever seen. Things which we cannot even comprehend, Jesus Christ made, He created. And yet there He was, born in a manger, in a stable, in humble circumstances. You see, John is helping us see that there's a unique glory to the Son, but that that glory is also wrapped up in His humility. It's wrapped up in His incarnation. Don't think for a moment that the only glory that you see in Jesus is the glory of a miracle or the glory of a transfiguration or the glory of His ascension or His present glory at the right hand of the Father or that which we can see by faith out into the future when in glory He comes back with all of His angels to conquer and rule over the world. Don't think for a moment that that's all the glory you see or that the only glory you can see in the Son is that which spoke the world into existence. No, my friends, there's a glory that's brewing in the manger where we see that God became man. The humility of Christ is glorious. We have seen His glory not only in that which has been revealed, but also in the humility and hiddenness of this reality which makes the glory of Christ so Profound. It's one thing to be beautiful and glorious, and to peacock around and to show it and demonstrate it. It's another thing altogether to be so glorious that it's even more pronounced, that it's even more bright in your humility, in what's hidden, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. John said, had to make this so clear. This is another thing that's true of the Incarnation. John the Evangelist, the author of this gospel, and puts in parentheses a little, little sentence here about John the Baptist. Why was it essential for John to include this here? It would make sense for verse 14 to end and verse 16 to start right after. It's a little, it's a little aside here in parentheses, perhaps, in your translation. It is in mine. John had to make it clear. John bore witness. John the Baptist Bore witness about him, that's Jesus. And he cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. You see, why John the Evangelist had to include this and why John the Baptist had to say this is that there were some who would have conflated the glory of Christ and the glory of John the Baptist because Jesus' life and his his existence seemed so simple to those on the outside. He genuinely became Man. You see, people could accidentally come to the conclusion, and some did, that John the Baptist and Jesus are similar. They're on similar planes, that they're on similar missions from God. But John made clear from the very beginning that he came to testify about Jesus because Jesus came before him. He was a forerunner to the gospel, but certainly did not preclude Jesus in terms of age and glory and stature. Do you see it? Jesus Christ... Is the Word made flesh. He is the eternal God made man. And that glory ought to strike us to our very core today. That's our first point. The second is this another way to see Jesus' glory is this Jesus Christ shows us grace and truth. Jesus Christ shows us grace and truth. Notice what the Bible says in verse 16. For from His fullness, the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. There's two ways to translate this. Either the way you see it here in this translation, grace upon grace, or another way to say this would be something like grace replacing grace. Now, in one sense, the way we see it here, this just means an abundance of grace. Grace upon grace. It's sort of self-evident what it means. Most translators go with that because it does certainly make some sense in the context. But other commentators and translators say grace, replacing grace is better because of the context and because of the way this is constructed. Because what it's saying is that we received a level of grace from God through Moses, through the Old Testament, but now we have a greater measure of grace that's replacing the former grace. In other words, John is trying not to set the law and grace apart from one another, but it's showing the way that a fresh dispensation or a, a fresh wave of grace is coming in Jesus. Either way, whether, whichever way you think is the case, and you may want to go do a study later to see what you think. Either way, what we take home from this is the same. We see the way that the culmination of God's loving kindness, the, the pinnacle of God's grace, is arriving, it's coming, it's being received through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the beauty of this? Do you see what's coming? Uh, again, John the evangelist is alluding back to the Old Testament. Because he goes on in verse 17 and says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in Deuteronomy 34, the Lord speaks to the children of Israel and He describes Himself and He says that He is a God of loving kindness and He says that He's a God of faithfulness words, he's a God of grace. He's a God of truth. Again, John is tightly tying who Jesus is to the God who was revealed to his forefathers in the Old Testament. We see then here a picture of Jesus as one of steadfast love or grace and of faithfulness and truth. These are both distinct descriptors of the character of God throughout the Old Testament to say that God is a God of loving kindness. Maybe you've heard this before, seen this in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament, God great in loving kindness, great in mercy, and God is faithful no matter what. God is true. Though every man be a liar, let God be true. And we see the wave in that the totality of who God is, the entirety of God's character, is there in full in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let let me put it like this. There's nothing that's true of God that's not true of Jesus. And there's nothing that's true of Jesus that's not true of God. Some of us want to sort of draw a hard line between the God of the Old Testament and the Lord Jesus Christ, but we'd be foolish to do so. It'd be wrong to do such because what John is trying to help us see here is that the Lord Jesus is full of grace and truth just like God the Father is. He, in fact, very much is the image, the very picture in the life of Christ of the God of the Old Testament and the New. It's one God. You see, Jesus, my friends, is perfectly balanced. Theologians talk about the simplicity of God. In other words, if you were to sit down, we could sit down and I could say to you, tell me what some of the names of God are. And some of you have done studies on the names of God, and you can help me understand what it is that each name of God in the Old Testament means, what it tells us about God. Others of you, I could say, tell me some of the attributes of God. What are some things that you've heard are attributes of God? Maybe you've read Pink or some other book, and you've done, or you've done a study of the attributes of God, and you've gone through and seen all the things that are true of God. And so for us, in our minds, we think we see someone coming down the road and we say, that person's rude. Or or we say, that person's really a person of love and kindness. Or we say, that's a very stern person. We, we, We associate people with certain ideals. And certainly... As humans then, our understanding of who God is can be limited because we hear God is love and the Bible says God is love and we think of God as a God of love and then we see God's wrath or we see God's justice or we see God's severity or we see this in God or that in God and we start to wonder how can He be both? The doctrine of simplicity is this, that God is God. That all these truths, all these attributes, all these names are all part of a fully-orbed picture for God to be God. Theologians call this his essence. I, I like to call it the Godness of God. God is God. He's simple in His being. He's simple in His essence. And God is perfectly balanced. He's exactly what we need. There's not one craving. There's not one desire. that's never, There's not one longing that you have in your heart or that we experience in this world that it cannot be perfectly satisfied in God. And so it's so beautiful when John describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. Because it's a picture of this balance. It's a picture of the reality that Jesus is fully God of fully God. And there is a pronounced glory in the simplicity of the grace and truth that's present in Jesus. He's the Word made flesh. He's full of grace and truth. And aren't those two things that our world desperately needs? We, don't we desperately need truth? I think we do. You know, people talk about your truth and my truth and this truth and that truth. What is true? We desperately need the firmness of the truth of the Word of God. We desperately need Jesus to speak truth to us. But don't we also desperately need grace? Aren't people beat down? Aren't people wrestling with their guilt? Aren't we living enough in this world where no grace is offered to anyone? Isn't it beautiful that Jesus offers us just what we need? He's the word made flesh. He's grace and truth. But a third glory is this. Jesus Christ makes God known. Jesus Christ makes God known. If a dignitary were to come to your place of business, if the president were to come or or some other person, the governor, or whoever, even the mayor, or whoever were to come, you would, at some level or another, make some sort of an overture to them being here, being there. You'd say, we like to welcome them today, or you would welcome them. You certainly would make some sort of a to-do if a dignitary were to show up. You know, we have a Christmas parade and have a grand marshal come and lead the parade or whatever else. We do things like that. We expect fanfare and pomp and special treatment when someone who's glorious comes around, right? Someone who's accomplished something, someone who's done something. We, we want to make sure. If I have a guest preacher come who's, who's of some level of renown in the world, I always pray, oh Lord, let the folks show up. So we're not embarrassed. Now what if God came to earth? What would you expect? What sort of pomp and fanfare and special treatment do you think God would expect for Himself? What what, what sort of glory would you expect when the military uh, demonstrations started happening and the bands started lining up, ready to play the songs of welcoming Him into the world? What sort of crowd would you expect? What would you expect people to see? And yet, when God lines up the military band to announce His glory, He does it to shepherds. Gloria. Gloria. Chelsea Glory to God in the highest. He does it in the most humble and simple means. No one has ever seen God, John says. No one has ever seen God. That's not to say that people didn't know of God. That's not to say that Moses didn't catch a glimpse of the glory of God when he is hidden in the cleft of the rock. That's not to say that there aren't uh, what we see as manifestations of the presence of God throughout the Old Testament, maybe the angel with whom, the messenger with whom uh, Jacob wrestled, or you think about the fourth person who's there in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are seem to be revelations or, or pictures of God. Certainly Old Testament authors would call them God, but that doesn't mean that those people saw the fullness and the totality of who God is. No one has ever seen God. And though some have caught a glimpse of Him, some have seen Him pass by, nobody's actually ever fully seen Him. Listen to what John says. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side. In other words, what is true of God is true of Jesus. If the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're the only God. There is no other God but them. This is Deuteronomy. This is simple, basic faithful view of who god is the only god is also at the same time fully god of fully god and the only god and yet somehow because of god's greatness and grandeur the only god is also at the father's side he has made him known jesus christ makes god known do you want to know god Look to Jesus. Do you want to see and experience the glory of God in its fullness? Don't look to the preacher. Don't look to the church. Don't look anywhere but to Jesus, look to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to hold the hand of God, then put your hand in the nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to experience His glory, if you want to drink fully of who God is, look to Jesus and Jesus alone. The only way you can know God in this life, in this world, and in the world to come is through Jesus. It is. It's always fun to tell stories about someone famous that we've met. To share that we've been in the presence of glory. And certainly there's glory in this world. But isn't it amazing to think that the life was in the Word and that His life is the light of men, and that that Word became flesh and dwelt among And isn't it amazing, not simply that we've been in the presence of glory, but that the glory of the world, the glory of Israel, the light of the world, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom this world and all planets scattered for trillions of miles beyond, everything that was made was made through Him. Isn't it amazing that the glory came to us? my friends, we have beheld His glory. And this Christmas, it's my hope and my prayer that you'll know Him, that you'll see Him, that you'll embrace Him by faith. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust in Jesus for the first time, I'll be standing right down here if you want someone to talk with or pray with. Otherwise, you can stay right there. You can stay right there, right where you are. You can turn from your sins in repentance and Turn to God in faith through Jesus. I believe you will be saved. You may be too uncomfortable to come down front. You may want someone to talk with and pray with. I'll be outside, right down the steps out here at the end of the service. I'd love to meet you. I'll drop everything I'm doing to talk to you about Jesus if you want to know Him today. Second of all, you may be a believer. You need some time to pray. You take this time to respond to the Lord. Either right where you are, this altar is open for you. And I'm certainly available as well. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me today to talk to you about what it means to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.